Isaiah chapter 46, I invite you to turn your attention with me this morning. We'll be reading two chapters, actually, Isaiah 46 and 47. It is abundantly clear to you by now, if you have been following this series of sermons in Isaiah, that Isaiah was prophesying a time when God would punish his people, Israel, Judah in particular, for their rebellion against him. And the rod that God would use, in Judah's case, was Babylon. Now that does not make Babylon a pristine uh, empire whatsoever. As a matter of fact, Babylon is a wicked, idolatrous people on whom also God is going to visit disaster for, uh, for her sins when his purposes for her are finished. Here in these two chapters, then, God makes two speeches, uh, one to Israel in chapter 46, and then you'll see when we turn over to 47, a speech to Babylon. Israel, he is preparing for exile by reminding them of his own identity as their God, their one true and only God, besides whom there is no other. Unless they forget during their captivity in Babylon and begin to bow down to the Babylonian gods, uh, he sets himself before their view for their sole allegiance, whether they're living in, in Canaan or in Babylon. Then God turns to Babylon in all of her pomp and arrogance and puts her in her place, reminding her that it is he who delivered Israel to her in, her in the first place and that her day of reckoning is coming too. Now what's so interesting about all of this, as we read it, you'll see it, I think, is that everything he has to say to Israel and to Babylon, he could say and does say today to the church and to the nations. These words are 2,700 years old that we're about to read, but they rise from the page like the aroma of, of bread freshly baked just this morning. Before we go to the reading, though, I want to explain to you uh, something. Bel and Nebo, uh, they make their appearance immediately in verse 1. These are the names of primary gods in Babylon. Bel is the father and Nebo the son in terms of Babylonian idolatry. And each year during the New Year's uh, festival, those idols were placed, Bel and Nebo, on the backs of beasts of burden and uh, paraded through the city. The picture then with which Isaiah begins this chapter is of such a procession, only the animals in Isaiah's inspired imagination, are stumbling from the dead weight of those gods, causing Bel and Nebo to bow down and stoop. It is yet another example in the Bible, and in Isaiah in particular, of God making fun of other gods, of the idols, of the false gods. God's people Israel, uh, by the way, would have been familiar with these names, Bel and Nebo, from a distance. Uh, and, of course, even more directly, they would come to know those names as they're exposed to them during their captivity to 
Babylon. Let's go to the word after first we pray. Our Father in heaven, send thy spirit, we pray. He has done great works for these thousands of years. He has uh, opened ears and hearts on a regular basis. The same Holy Spirit who made himself known to the disciples that day of Pentecost is here and working now. And we pray that he would grant us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive and be molded by your truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 46, bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me. O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer. Or save him from his trouble. Remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. And there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. 
our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever. So that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this. You lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall befall you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. This passage we've just read is a demonstration, isn't it, of that old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same. For all of the changes that have been made over these 2,700 years since Isaiah penned those words, for all of the nations and empires that have risen and fallen, for all of the advances that we have made medically and technologically, our modern warfare, our modern centrally heated and cooled homes, automobiles and malls and printing and mass media capabilities and worldwide, worldwide travel and And so on. I say for all of that, things have really remained the very same when it comes to the great and grand questions and issues of life. 
The leading actors present in this universe are still just two, God and man. Two cities, to use Augustine's metaphor, two cities continue side by side in the world today just as they did in Isaiah's day and before that, the city of God and the city of man. Sin, though it's found many modern means of expression, still remains the same. Sin. Man's propensity for evil has not changed. His heart remains today what it's been since sin entered the world, an idol factory. And that idol factory continues to crank out idol after idol that, that look a lot like man who fashions them for the very simple reason that our idols, all of them, are really just extensions of ourselves, of human beings. God's made by us to serve us. So the old rivalry continues today as it has in the past. Whom will you serve and worship? Who will hold your fidelity, your confidence, your fealty, your allegiance? Ultimately, it will fall to one of two parties. God or man. Now, some of you caught the sermon title in the bulletin this morning and guessed where I'm, I'm going with this. I've called today's sermon Theist Manifesto. You've heard of a document called the Humanist Manifesto that was written in 1933 by a group of professors and ethicists philosophers and Unitarian ministers. A new improved humanist manifesto was added in 1973. As I studied in preparation for the sermon today, if today's sermon, I was reminded of that document by Babylon, uh, the Babylonian assertion there in chapter 47, verse 10. I am, and there is no one besides me. That is the humanist's cry and the fundamental claim of humanism. I am, and there's no one besides me. In other words, man rules. It was, in effect, the cry heard in heaven from the Garden of Eden, the day that Adam put the fruit to his lips. I am. I am God. It was the raising of the fist for the dual purposes of defying the creator and deifying that is making a God of the creature, of man. It's not for no reason that it is called humanism. It is a religion. Humanism is a belief in man. In man's abilities, in man's will, man's control of all things, including the future. And all that for man's sake and for man's glory. To use the words of the manifesto, the human manifesto, humanist manifesto, the quest for the good life is the central task for mankind. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power of its achievement. 
He must set his intelligence and will to the task. You can read the entire Humanist Manifesto for yourself online, uh, not so much for your edification, but so as to make yourself more familiar with the religion that pervades the place in which you live. Today, as it, as it did in Babylon, Babylon three millennia ago, humanism is the reigning religion. Against such blustering bravado, God supplies in this chapter what I've called the theist manifesto, the manifestation of God. Against Babylon's claims to invincibility and against every nation and every person and every force that has claimed or will claim such pride of place, God says in chapter 46, verse 9, I am God. And there is no other. He's willing, God is willing to confront humanism head on. Whether in Babylon or in the United States of America or in the world or in your own heart. And he is willing to go round for round, blow for blow, until man's overreaching claims are shown for the empty foolishness that they are. Two things strike us here in these chapters. God's assertions concerning salvation and concerning his control of the future. It hardly seems like a mere coincidence then that the same two questions of salvation and of control of the future take prominent place in the humanist manifesto. First, concerning salvation. Listen to this from the preface of the second Humanist Manifesto from 1973. Salvationism, by which we imagine they mean uh, you know, belief in the need for salvation, salvationism still appears as harmful, diverting people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. Later on in that same document, we read, quote, No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. End quote. What is that but Babylon in America? Babylon said the same thing. We will save ourselves. We and these gods we've fashioned out of gold and silver will save ourselves. Bel and Nebo, who, by the way, are totally unknown today. Nobody knows, much less worships, Bel and Nebo anymore. Our modern gods have displaced them. Things like government. And the government is more than willing these days to comply Give us your money, and we will take care of you. Babylon trusted in her armies, called herself mistress forever. What did her thick walls and her armies, very modern, 
for her day accomplish for her salvation? Nothing. Another of our modern gods is money. If only we have enough in the 401k to overcome the contingencies, then we think we'll be okay. Another of our modern gods is education. Want to secure your future? Want to make lots of money? Never do without? Get your college education. Get your education and everything will be okay. Of course, all of these gods really come back, don't they? All of them come back to man. Salvation by man, salvation by human institution. Full faith and credit is a clause that means that the U.S. government backs the currency in your pocket. Well, doesn't that inspire your confidence these days? Technology is another one of our favorite gods. Man's ability to invent a way to extend his life to make himself happy to invent your way to salvation. But all of these religions and philosophies, save one, when you boil them all down, are fundamentally the same. Self-salvation by self-effort. It may be know yourself, as the ancient Greeks might have said, or control yourself, as the ancient Stoics of the Roman imperial world would have said, or extinguish yourself, as the Buddhist might say, or subordinate yourself, as the Muslim might say, or improve yourself, as the modern thinker might say. But all of them share one thing in common. Self. Man. God says no. No, salvation is not found in you. Salvation is not found in the gods that you fashion after yourself. Salvation is found in one place, and in one place alone it is found in me. He says, look, you carry your idols around. He's poking fun of them, isn't he, of the idols. You carry your idols around. You put them on beasts of burden and the dead weight of your gods of self cannot save you and actually only serve to make your burden the heavier, adding guilt and awakening new senses of your own weaknesses and helplessness. But I carry those who trust in me. Verse 3, from the womb even to your old age, I am he and to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. We might put it this way, from the womb to the tomb and beyond. God saves and God alone. Second, consider what God has to say about the future, starting in verse 9 there of chapter 46. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now contrast that to the bold assertion of the humanist manifesto 
that says, quote, using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, extend our lifespan, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. If only, if only it were so, if only man really could control and manipulate the future like that. But alas, much less than controlling the future, man can't even predict the future. Like the sorcerers of Babylon, the psychic hotlines today make millions for their owners. But check the small print on the bottom of the screen. What does it say? For entertainment purposes only. Why? So they don't get sued when their predictions don't come to pass. We can't even anticipate what's going to come in the future. In 1929, Irving Fisher, professor of economics at Yale, carved out a niche for himself in history when he said, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Mere months later, Wall Street crashed. Decca Records turned down the opportunity to sign the Beatles in 1962, saying, we don't like their sound, and guitar music is on its way out. Ken Olson, founder and president of Digital Equipment Corporation, declared in 1977, there is no reason why anyone would want a computer in their home. I say man can't even predict the future, can't even anticipate it, much less control it. But God does both. He knows the future because he's already decreed it. It's something that sets him apart from the pretend gods and from every human being. Only God knows the future. Only God controls the future. That's what it means to be the one living and true God, to have that kind of knowledge and that kind of power. Now, much more could be said. We've not said anything about the judgment and wrath of God to come at which the humanists scoff, but will not be laughing when it comes any more than Babylon laughed when it came on them. We haven't said anything about humanism's confidence that we live in a closed universe, apart from God saying things like they did in Babylon, no one sees me. Nor have we even touched on the matter of origins, the biblical view versus the patent absurdity of evolutionary theory, or the matter of the afterlife, heaven and hell versus Nothingness. But I want to finish on this Pentecost Sunday with a real life account of what happens when these two worldviews, the humanist, in this case 
taking the form of Judaism, remember that all world religions save one, boil down into humanistic self-salvation, and the theist with their contrary conceptions of salvation and control of the future collide in the human heart where the Holy Spirit is at work. Some of you know the name Richard Gans. He was a psychoanalyst, a Ph.D., a psychiatrist. He's now a pastor in the Reformed Church of North America. They were atheists when, on a trip to Europe, chance acquaintances steered him and his wife to Labrie, uh, Francis Schaeffer's ministry. Here's his own account of what happened. The next few days were interesting. They were full of religious discussion. But as a man with no sense of God, seeing myself as a chance accumulation of molecules in an absurd and meaningless world, I listened and talked to these people, questioning and mocking their beliefs. Then one day, a man asked if he uh, may read something to me from the Bible. I consented, and this is what he read. And by the way, Richard Gantz was a uh, Jew, which may have had something to do with the choice of this text. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The fellow was reading to him, of course, from Isaiah 53 and its prophecy of the coming of the servant of the Lord. I'd heard the expression man of sorrows and acquainted with grief before, though I wasn't sure where. But at that point, I suddenly understood what was happening. They were reading to me about Jesus. I thought, do they know what they are doing, reading this Christian stuff to a Jew? But I told myself to be patient. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem them stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Renaissance images, uh, paintings leapt into my mind. I wasn't an ordinary Jewish guy. I had a doctorate. I was cultured. I'd seen paintings with crosses. I knew that their guy had been pierced. They were trying to read me stories about Jesus, and I felt the anger rising in me. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that uh, brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus. Just bore your sins. I couldn't stand it. That was just a cheap way out of long-term psychoanalysis. What they were telling me was the Catholic way. From the age of seven, when I had walked into a Catholic church, I thought Jesus was a Catholic, Scandinavian perhaps, very delicate, tall, thin, slightly anorexic, with long, silken blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. 
I had got as far as the vestibule of the church, looked at one of the statues and thought that the ground was going to open up and swallow me, that I was unalterably damned for having done that, and I ran eight blocks home to get away from what I considered an unpardonable sin. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. I remembered the pictures Jesus on the cross with the two thieves on either side of him, three crosses. I knew that stuff. They weren't going to fool me with their rhetoric. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. There's the myth about the resurrection. They get it into all their literature, don't they? They can't accept the fact that once a person is dead, he's dead, that's it. Grow up. Put away your infantile neuroses and realize that when you're dead, you're dead. When he finished reading, he looked at me and said, what do you think? I was, of course, keen to give him the benefit of my insights. They were obviously quoting to me from their New Testament. And I responded without a moment's hesitation. Anyone who was there at the cross could have written that stuff. What does that prove? And he handed me his Bible. And in a millisecond of receiving it, my life was changed. The name that I saw at the top of the page was Isaiah. They had been reading from my Bible, my Hebrew scriptures, and I felt as though someone had taken a sword and cut me to pieces. And the man who read it told me it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. I felt dead. Why couldn't it be Krishna? Why couldn't it be Buddha? Why did it have to be him? I knew at that instance that if Jesus wrote history about himself in my Bible, and if the Gentile God was the Jewish God and he was truly God, then I had to submit everything to him for the rest of my life. That is what happens, you see, when a man or woman, a boy or a girl, comes to the realization, supernaturally inspired in his heart, that God not only knows the future, he controls it. And that in that same God, in him alone, is salvation to be found. He or she realizes the absurdity 
and the folly of trusting in man and submits everything to God for the rest of his or her life.